Welcome to another episode of Outlawing Podcast. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, man. Um, yeah, good to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> I invited you to talk about the weather underground because last time we didn't really dive into it like I thought we would, mostly because we were talking about covert action, which is important as well, too, we, to discuss that. And we kind of, my show's conversation, we keep the range. But Ron, could you explain to me a little bit how you got started writing about the weather underground? Yeah, sure. Um, I was in high school when the weather underground began and uh, their actions, you know, I guess nowadays they would be called terrorist actions. Back then they were called something different because the the language was different, I guess is the best way. There was much more of a movement that understood that stuff. But, um, and they, you know, being a teenager, you're kind of fascinated, or a guy teenager, especially, I think, you're you're kind of fascinated by people who make bold actions. You're like outlaw, the whole outlaw thing and stuff like that. And so that's kind of where they struck a chord with me. And then when I, um, I was, like I said, when they start, when they, the first I ever heard of them was in like 1969, when they had, when they first, when they had their first action in Chicago, um, called the Days of Rage. And then when they went underground, um, I was living over in Germany by then because my dad was in the military and we got stationed over there. And uh, there was there was a similar kind of groups going on over in Germany, like the Red Army faction. They began a little bit after that. And basically they were trying to start a revolution in a non-revolutionary situation. But back then there was a lot of people who thought there was going to be a revolution. So that's kind of how I got interested in them. And then over the years, I kind of, you know, they faded into oblivion for a number of reasons, which we may or may not talk about today. Um, and uh, they, uh, well, I want to talk about who who's filling up the weather underground was like other kids. Was it other people that were part of this movement? I mean, how many counterculture movements were actually kind of violent or were most of them just kind of peaceful in a sense too? the weather underground was violent, but I just don't think it was violent in the terms of hurting other people. They were really just trying to make a statement because they felt like they weren't being heard, which I think everybody gets to a point where they just start screaming at somebody. The like, frustration. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, I, let me give you like a really like kind of basic brief history of where they came from. They, they came out as students for democratic society, which was the largest, well, it was the largest mostly left oppositional movement in the United States um, from about 1965 until they fell apart in 1969. Um, and by 1968 was when, 68 was a crazy year, a lot of stuff happened, the Tet Offensive happened in Europe, the Paris, the French re almost revolution happened, there was riots and insurrections all over the Western world, as well as in Asia and so on. And uh, then, the, then Martin Luther King was killed, there was huge uprisings in the United States. So they came out of that whole milieu where things seem to be getting out of control because of the because of capitalism, racism, the war, you know, the counterculture was starting to really take hold the drug side of it as well as the other aspects of it. It was really broadening its uh, reach. Uh, so by 1968, you know, a lot of commentators figured there was over a hundred thousand members of the Students for Democratic Society, and when you get that many members of any organization, especially when it's not a tightly controlled organization, each each chapter on each college campus or whatever, because it was mostly a college phenomenon, there were some there were some chapters in high schools, and there were some chapters that stood alone that were not connected to any type of educational situation, like prof young professionals, what they call young professionals now, and so on. You know, 
basically people fresh out of college or grad school or whatever. Did any uh, professors fill up the Weather Underground? Any of them like just bothered um, looking into it? Some of them were mentors. I would say they were never official members, but they might have done some of the above ground work and so on and so forth, like logistical stuff. So anyhow, the Weather Underground, in 1969, they had this uh, a big national convention of the Students for Democratic Society. They had one every year. And there was, it was, it was heading to a point where there was going to be some kind of split. split. Yeah. And uh, that's what happened. Uh, because there's at least three different major trends within the the national organization. One trend was um, very, it was led by the Progressive Labor Party, which was a Maoist group. And they were all about dressing dressing up like working, what they thought working people looked like. And uh, which was white, middle, you know, white, middle class, working class, whatever. And then going into the factories and organizing. Um, and their politics, they they didn't support the Vietnamese National Liberation Front slash Viet Cong, whatever you want to call them. They they were against all nationalism. Um, they didn't necessarily support the Black Panthers. And then the two other, um, which was in the, at that time in the movement, supported the Black Panthers as one of those dividing lines because of this because of racism, the history of racism in the U.S., and it was a lot worse then than it is now. I think a lot of people probably would have stepped up, but the Black Panther Party members, they carried guns, even though they didn't use them. It was just, it kind of deterred them from wanting to step into probably a lot of those movements. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so, and then the other two trends, one was called the Revolutionary Youth Movement, and then the other became the Weather Underground. And basically, the Weather Underground led a walkout of the, you know, Basically, the weather underground caused the split in in this SDS, and so after the convention, the progressive labor people um, kind of left the were kicked out of the organization at least temporarily, and the revolutionary youth movement and uh, weather underground um, formed their coalition, and they took over the mantle of the Students for Democratic Society. They got the money and the newspaper so that they could do all that they eventually split up over tactics of like about six weeks later because the weather underground wanted to go attack police they wanted to fight police that was their thing both of them wanted both the revolutionary youth movement and weather underground both saw their focus as trying to organize white working class youth around the counterculture using the counterculture as kind of like their entryway and they kind of got that from uh, people like abby hoffman and the yippies because the Yippies had had launched that idea of, look, we have all these disaffected youth who are in the counterculture, who are running away from the draft, who are, you know, running away from their parents, running away from school, tuning on, tune, what dropping out, turning on, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of them were political. A lot of them were angry because the police were attacking them whenever there was large groups of them, say, in the Haight-Ashbury, Georgetown. Uh, each city had its own huge, what they called hippie ghettos. And so anyhow, out of all that milieu, um, the Weather Underground launched their Days of Rage protests, and they could, they thought there was going to be 10,000 people there. About 1,000 people showed up, but they still fought the cops. They got their asses kicked. There was, you know, the cops shot a couple of them. It was just kind of like a crazy, hard, you know, it's like, like what you said at the beginning, you know, they just got so frustrated that they, you know, it was just kind of like, let's just go kick some ass if we don't care what happens. It made a statement. It alienated a lot of other people who were, 
against the war and the students, you know, it, former SDSs and so on. But at the same time, it kind of brought a lot of attention from around the world to how desperate slash crazy things were getting in the United States, especially because of the war. Uh, and then after after the days of rage and what they considered a failure, of course they you know there was a lot of self criticism and group sessions where the, the the members of the Weather Underground, which was probably around two or three hundred people, and this was when they were still calling themselves Weatherman before they went underground, and then they decided they started talking about well what were they going to do next, and so they had a convention in Flint, Michigan, out um, at some camp outside of um, Flint, Michigan. And that's where they decided to go underground. And between the time that was in December 1969, and it was right, I think it was right after the Chicago police and the FBI had killed Black the Black Panthers, Fred Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton and yeah. Mark, yeah, and Mark Clark, Mark, Mark Clark. And, yeah, and that was like a death squad. They just went in and. and yeah, 126 shots fired. I think only one was attributed to the Black Panthers. I've talked to Jeffrey Haas, who's um. One oh, of the cool. Yeah, people. I know who he is. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'm trying to get into that one, but the resources for that one is so slim when it comes to people who are like experts studying that one. But I know a little bit about it. But I wanted to talk about: Do you consider the Weather Underground part of the counterculture movement, or do you think they were just riding the flag of the counterculture movement? That's a that's a really good question. Um, trying my best. <laughs> yeah, both both are probably true i i because i think when they first started they realized okay we need to and, and you know let's face it you know when it first started out if you read histories of sds or you talk to old people who were in the sds as it changed over from being a mass organization to what happened in 69 and afterwards um you'll you'll hear people say that oh they were just taking advantage of the counterculture and so on but really what happened was a lot of the politicos back in the they were pretty straight laced they didn't smoke pot you know they had short hair you know that which back then they meant something you know short hair long hair that was a dividing line i think we touched on that in the last conversation we had and uh so but but they're all young people mostly they're all hanging out they're, they're all listening to certain kinds of music so ultimately it kind of blended together just like it always does you know i mean you know so I think that they first thought they could just use it as an organizing tool. But when they went underground, if it hadn't been for the political elements of the counterculture and people who were politically inclined or who just liked to help out outlaws, they would they would not have been able to stay underground as long as they did. Uh, and I can tell you a little bit about that story. That especially happens when they decided to um, free Timothy Leary in like, that's right yeah 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 and so you know if you can like you can read my book my book focuses kind of on that aspect of them you know their politics and how they try to identify become part of and were accepted by different elements of the counterculture and not accepted by other elements of the counterculture and then there's this book by this fellow named dan berger which is a really really good book it's more academic and he he discusses a lot um about the element within the Weather Underground that saw themselves as the support group for a black a black revolution, a black led revolution in the uh, you know African American led revolution in the United States. Uh, so those were the two, and those were the kind of the two main 
trends inside the organization. Uh, so anyhow, they decided to go underground and they started the Central Committee, uh, which was some of the big names, Bernadine Dorn, um, Billy Ayers, uh, Jeff Jones. There's a few others that, you know, I are you can find in any book. You can, people can find it online if they just started looking. Uh, they started talking with people and working it out with people about who was going to go underground, who was going to stay above ground to kind of help out logistically, you know, get them fake IDs, get money to them, all that, set up safe houses, all that kind of stuff. Um, and some people didn't want to stay above ground. They wanted to go underground, but the central committee was like, no, we don't think you're ready. That's it. But it, all of that was fast forwarded when on March 6th, 1970, um, a townhouse exploded on, in Greenwich Village on 11th, East 11th Street, I believe it is. And the townhouse exploded three. There was one. Yeah, it was three of them died accidentally. Yeah. And I think there was five members, four or five. Yeah, I think there was five members of the group. They were one of the East Coast cells. And uh, it was Kathy Wilkerson's parents townhouse. I mean, a lot of the weather underground, they came from upper middle class and upper middle class families and wealth. Uh, a lot of the people that you never hear about, they were more coming from middle class or working class groups, you know, but the leadership, a lot of them, that's where they came from, uh, their class background, anyhow. Um, and one of their big things was what they call committing class suicide, going against your class to fight on the side of the working class. It's an old revolutionary thing, you know, especially at least going back to the Russian revolution, if not before that. Uh, so when that happened, the townhouse blew up. Three people died. And what apparently the story is, and it's the story that's most consistently told that I was told by people who kind of knew people, whatever. They they were planning on building a bomb that was loaded with nails. They were going to take it to a uh, dance at Fort Dix, an officer's dance at Fort Dix. And their plan was to set it off and try to, you know, as much collateral damage as possible. Um, and so this is where things started to change heavily inside the way they they approached their their bombing campaigns. Do you think that's just because of getting too many members that might be a little bit more on the extreme side of things? I would have to yeah, think and, if you're... In that cell especially, there was a couple guys who were like hardcore. They were just so angry, just whatever, you know, and, you know, I'm not going to go into the psychology of each individual because I don't know them, and, you know, but th that's always part of one of those things you never know, you know, when, it's, when someone decides to go the nihilist Way, which is essentially kind of what that is, you know. What was the groups that were detracted from the weather underground? Like, what groups did they not jive with compared to who they did jive with? Okay, that um, I would say they had support from the Black Panthers for a while, but the Black Panthers ended up splitting up between the East Coast Wing and, well, for sake of lack of a better terminology, the East Coast Wing, which was under the leadership of Eldris Cleaver, who eventually ended up in Algeria, and then. All, then the West Coast Wing, which was under the leadership of Huey Newton, and they both the East Coast Wing was much more into like let's start the revolution now, as opposed to the West Coast Wing realized they were going to have to they had a lot of organizing to do before they would have enough popular support to move it to the next stage. Um, but the groups that were really against it were, well, most of the traditional left wing groups, the Socialist Workers Party, the Communist Party. Um, the Revolutionary Youth Movement was against them because they thought the Revolutionary Youth Movement was much more into organizing and education 
and, and demonstrations as opposed to blowing things up or those kind of attacks. Uh, is that because the violence is seen more as like a right thing when it comes to what they were going after? I, I would say probably more they just didn't think it was would be received by the people they wanted to reach correctly um, because it was it was too premature um, in terms of what you do if you're going to plan a revolution as much as you can plan a revolution. Um, they thought it was unnecessarily provocative. Um, and, you know, there was rumors, although this has never been proved in all the research I've ever done, they were that that they were being that there was agent provocateurs within the group. However, there there wasn't. There was an informer during the in the first version of the Weatherman Weather Underground, Larry Grathwall, and he wrote a book called Bringing Down America or something like that. And he ran into the weather on the Weatherman in in, in Cleveland because they had a big chapter there. And uh, then the FBI started paying him. He infiltrated the group, but they they figured out who he was like in the early 1970s and kicked him out of the group. And from then on, they were super tight until like 1977 when they got when the group had split up into at least two or three factions. And there was only like 50 people left in it by that time, anyhow. And then they got infiltrated by members of the uh, California Bureau of Investigation slash Red Squad. And they provoked them. You know. I, I knew they blew up a toilet, but has there been anything else besides? And we're going to get to the Timothy Leary thing. I have to know about that because I had learned a lot about Timothy Leary through separate conversations. And the Weather Underground is also a name that gets mentioned. But, I mean, did they have any – obviously, they probably had some failures. But did they have anything that – I mean, was the media talking about them? Was the government starting to be like, this is going to be a real problem? They were – they – yes, the government was – after the Black Panthers, they were probably the – one of the group they were probably like in the top five groups that the oh, FBI sure. went after. Uh, they were terrified of them. Uh, and uh, you know, let me set on let me set like a, a kind of like a more of a background too. If there's a if you go online and and you can find this magazine called Scanlins, which was like a left wing magazine that existed for about maybe eight months in the eight 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 months maybe a year um it was like left and avant-garde they had this article in there about how many bombings were reported by the fbi um politically political political bombings and it was something like 350 in 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 one year uh and so the weather underground probably did at the most 30 uh and the rest were done by other groups, you know, like just individual groups who were opposed to the war. Most of them were about the war. They were mostly attacking um, military installations, recruitment centers, research places on campuses, you know, that that were affiliated with the Pentagon or, or some element of the defense establishment. Um, so I would say their biggest, their most famous, infamous uh, bombings were the bombing of the Capitol in 1971 uh, and the bombing of the Pentagon in 1972. Uh, the bombing of the Capitol, that's the one I believe you, um, both of them, I think, I know the Capitol, I'm almost positive the Capitol one, if I remember right, was in a bathroom. Uh, it didn't cause much destruction uh, beyond destroying the bathroom, you know, which was probably like in those days, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. You know, today it would be a million just because the dollar is what it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, the one in the Pentagon actually destroyed a bunch of tapes because, I mean, you got to remember back then things were computerized, but it wasn't computerized like it is now. I mean, they had those big tapes that you see on 
2001 and stuff that are, you know, and so they destroyed a lot of information on that. However, you know, my father was in the Air Force and he told me like afterwards that they, of course, have that information stored somewhere else as well. But it caused huge alarm. The media was all over them. Uh, they they were they broke into their lawyers. The FBI broke into their lawyers offices a lot. Um, even the White House plumbers broke into them. Uh, Nixon was afraid. Nixon was wanted to get them really bad. J. Edgar Hoover wanted to get them really bad. Uh, that was one of the play points where they totally agreed with each other. And the media painted them up real big. And when they finally when the FBI was able finally able to get some warrants regarding some regarding the days of rage actions and then a couple bombings um they were they expanded the uh fbi's 10 most wanted to i think the 20 most wanted and there was four or five members of the weather underground who were in in that top that's really that's really interesting that they had such an impact like that that even the fbi was kind of really scared of what the actions that they were doing because now you wouldn't even be able to know if you did anything that pissed off the fbi they could just come over and be like hey you did something it's like what what did i do yeah yeah and that's i think that that brings up a whole lot of interesting points probably the what one that's probably key to a lot of things the difference between then and now is that the media was to the, the mainstream media was two things at the same time then it was owned by a lot more different corporations you know now the media is owned most of the media in the united states is owned by like two or three big companies if that deep um, state deep state yeah yeah or the corporate state, you know, <laughs> you know, same thing sometimes as we talked about yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, for example, the Washington Post was owned by the Washington Post. You know, the Baltimore Sun was owned by the Baltimore Sun. Now the Baltimore Sun is owned by the Chicago Tribune, which is owned by this, which is owned by that, which probably all goes back to Time Warner or something, you know. Um, and the other side of it was that because the, for one thing, the big thing was the internet didn't exist. And that is so different in the way people receive their news. The, the three major networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC, millions of people tuned in to their nightly news broadcasts. I mean, Walter Cronkite was- The honest man of America until we found out- He was out the sage, man. Later. Yeah, yeah, he was the sage, you know, and people listened to him. I mean, they took his word for his their interpretation of the news. And so they would post that kind of stuff and- him and Dan Rather. Yeah, he came next. You know, Dan Rather. I want to take a little side story about Dan Rather, if you don't mind. Please tell me he's bad. Please. Well, well, this is interesting. This is one part in nineteen when Nixon, when Watergate was happening, and Nixon knew that Nixon was really under pressure because the smoking gun had been released or was getting ready to be released, and so on. There, but Nixon. To his credit, continued to hold news conferences. I think partially because he liked the combat between himself and the media, you know, because and he could think on his feet. I mean, as we talked last time, you know, Nixon was politically smart. He was he was a very smart man when it came to knowing how to make the ship of state work until his ego got too his ego got in the way too much. But um, there was this great exchange um, during one of these press conferences during Watergate. And Dan Rather was, he was just a reporter then. He was the White House CBS guy, you know, you know how they have a special news team. Each each reporter 
each news media outlet gets to send their yeah. own re a certain reporter with the little microphone and the giant box. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he he got a chance to ask the question, and he goes, "Mr. President, um, and had what was the question? Something about um, with the media attacking you so much, do you hate the? It's been said that you hate the media." And Nixon came back and said, and, and there was a little more to it because he was basically putting in a serious dig at Nixon. And Nixon came back with the response, I cannot hate those I don't respect. Damn. And that was pretty solid, actually, you know. But like Dan Rather back then, before he became the stooge, you know, he was actually quite a good reporter be before he got the job as the talking head. Yeah, I saw him from a Kennedy thing. There's a lot of Kennedy documents on him, but there was a, a special he had done and with the jfk assassination and he was talking about like if you're analyzing the zapruder film it's colorized video they had done it i guess years later or something and um he goes see you can't even tell it looks like the head goes back but you don't know if jackie could have pushed him back and i'm like that's where that damn conspiracy started about jackie doing it and i was like that's like he said that on national television so i was like i mean they played it they aired these specials so i was like what do we do there? And then there, he has still so many documents that are under his name. That technically, since he worked at that corporation, those are under both those his, him and the corporation, which sucks because it's like public footage. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's history. You should want to know. Like I'm interested in the tapes. And I know somewhere destroyed. I had heard about the Weather Underground destroying tapes before, but yeah, Dan Rather. I mean, there's media. I mean, how can you really trust anything at this point when you look at like, I mean, when you mentioned about bombing um some of the Pentagon stuff that the Weather Underground did that when it came to college campuses, were they aware that there was government influence on college campuses? Because people don't even know they do that today. I found out from the church committee report and I'm like, how did we let this happen? I, I think people kind of believed it, but I don't think they realized the magnitude of it. I mean, that's one thing. One thing that that whole period did is it really changed the way people perceived their government. I mean, the Weather Underground obviously knew the cops were after them because they knew they were doing a lot of illegal stuff. People who smoked pot knew the cops were after them, you know, stuff like that. You know, uh, the Black Panthers knew the cops were after them. But I think most of America just was didn't believe it. And the thing that really changed it was a combination. It, it began with Nixon. Well, it actually began during the Vietnam War when they they created what was called the credibility gap. But then it was more about people not trusting the government, but trusting the media. By the end of the 70s, people didn't trust the media or the government. And that's kind of led to where we are now, where nobody knows who to, you know, do, do you trust anything? You know, I mean, Trump brought it to the to the to the final thing with the fake news. I mean, and he had a point. I mean, but his his he just brought it to the, an absurd point where it, it it just became absurd, but it also is a joke, but it's also based in a reality that that was is exists. So, so from your personal perspective, do you think that like from your research on the weather underground, do you think that they are part of the counterculture, but probably the more aggressive side of things? Um, I think a lot of people think of counterculture. They think of the hippies and they think of people like just protesting and sitting. And I think that's the counterculture part, but there's also like the extreme end of it, which is the explosions that is breaking Timothy Leary out of jail, which is, you got to tell me that. Cause I don't know how, how did he get connected to Timothy Leary? I mean, I guess he's everybody's hero back then. Cause the amount of LSD he was handing out, but. Um, that's a good, let me start with that first part of the question. Um, there 
there's the if you if you look at counterculture history, um, there's this point like maybe 69, 70, when like the hippie, the term hippie was a media term to begin with. In, in the Haight-Ashbury, they buried the term hippie like in 19, at the end of 1967. They had this mock funeral and everything. But then uh, the yippies started and the diggers started popularizing this term freaks because, and that's what hippies started calling themselves was freaks. And then when the yippies started, the yippies never were an organization. They were a media event. They just manipulated the media. And so anybody who wanted to be a yippie was a yippie or they weren't a yippie. You know, you could be a yippie for a day. You could be a yippie for your life. It was just a whole media concept, you know, that they they played around with the media and were pretty good at it. And the media responded either negatively or positively, but it didn't matter because they were getting publicity, which is the point, you know. <clears throat> but, uh, and so the, so the freaks were people who were not only as a general thing, you know, um, the freaks were people who were not just counterculture, but they were against the establishment. They were against the war. They were willing to, a lot of them were willing to take it to the next step, like what you're talking about, to go and fight the cops, to, to um, set up, to live outside of society. Um, and I would say the mellow side of that, the freak thing, would be a, would be represented by a band like the Grateful Dead back then, who were, you know, they weren't militant, but any time, like they did benefits for the Black Panthers, they did benefits for uh, different political organizations that were under attack by the police, they did benefits for the people who got arrested at People's Park. I mean, so they were firmly rooted in that community, but, you know, but then you've had, say, someone like the Jefferson Airplane, who on their album volunteers of america they they basically say god it's time for revolution you know and you know like we talked about with rage against the machine it was words you know um they were living in a nice house up in marin county and all that kind of stuff you know but they were that's how they were identifying themselves with that more extreme element of the counterculture i do think that the weather underground was part of the counterculture the vast majority of them as individuals and as a as a group, I in a, when I was writing my book, I, I talked to Bill Ayers a couple of times. I didn't talk to a lot of people who were in the Weather Underground because back when my book was written in, in the 90s, a lot of them were still afraid of police. So they didn't want to talk to me or they talked anonymously or would I would send them what I had and they would say, yeah, that happened or I don't remember that, you know, just kind of using journalistic verification methods and stuff. Um, but uh, Billy Ayers, he goes, well, we live like hippies. He said, what can you say? You know, he said, we lived off of food stamps. We got fake IDs. We um, hit the dumpsters. We went to free meals. We went to the free clinics. You know, we got money from our rich friends. You know, we rock musicians slipped us a few thousand dollars, you know, stuff like that. We lived in communes. We lived out off the grid, you know, just kind of how that the counterculture was kind of going to in, at, at during the 70s. Um, now I can tell the so the Timothy Leary thing. Wait, did did any of those guys you talked to or anyone that messaged you back or anybody you interviewed about the Weather Underground? Did any of them have any regrets? Yes, um, most of them did. Uh, for you know, some of them couched you know couched it in purely political terms, saying, "I regret that we were we were so right about what was wrong." With the United States, but so wrong about how to deal with it, you know. Um, or we're—I so, I regret that we were so impatient that we 
jump the gun and, and you know, basically fuck things up, you know. Um, and, you know, I got this secondhand, but a good friend of mine who who died a couple of years ago, her name was Roz Payne. She lived up here in um, Vermont for a long time, but she was connected to the original Yippies. She knew all the Weather Underground folks and everything because she grew up and she hung out with them when they all were in New York City and in Chicago back in the late 60s. Uh, she was a member of the Newsreel Collective, which is a group of um, filmmakers who would put together uh, left slash counterculture slash African-American liberation film clips, like like the old newsreels that used to be, they used to show before the movies back back before the television and so on. And then they would put, they would edit it, put it together and send it out to like GI coffee houses, to food co-ops, to different political organizations, all into college campuses all over the United States and in Europe. And then that's how we got, they got their news around. But anyhow, so she had a lot of connections with all these different people. And she, she told me that Bernadine Dorn blamed the Weather Underground for the destruction of the new left. And I personally think that's a little bit, that ignores COINTELPRO, I mean, and it also, I think it's a little bit hubristic because there was a lot of other groups that were all around too. And like if, if the Weather Underground, they, by 1975, they were pretty much, well, by 1972, they were pretty much irrelevant except for their occasional bombings because a lot of people had moved beyond that and were back to mass organizing and so on. So, you know, I, I kind of disagree with that. Um, other people that I talked to, they had no regrets at all. And a lot of them were ones who were still underground, who I met through intermediaries and so on, or communicated with, you know. And of course, why would they, you know, they couldn't have any regrets because they had, that was their life. They had stayed underground and they, you know, they died underground, Most a, a few of them, you know, so. I just, um, because when I talked to Abe Peck, he worked for the Chicago yeah, Seed. Yeah, they were doing good this. guy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when he told me, like, he had regrets, um, about some of the things or some of the actions he had done. And I guess that's all the hindsight. You can kind of look back on some certain things. He never did anything super, super aggressive. I mean, you throw a brick at a cop or something. Right, right, right. There's a lot of it where I was like, it's just interesting to see the balance of the age later. I mean, there's still people that to the T, they go, everything we did was right. But it is like, it was that one of the causes of the extreme violence? I mean, COINTELPRO, all those programs that get loaded out later. I mean, it's a lot of that stuff happens to do with the violent actions that start happening. But I don't know. It's just interesting to me because it's so like, if you could go, back in time and be like you guys have it all perfect just don't do the violence stuff and you might actually start i mean they were organized they had safe houses they had so much for those coordinators like they were already all set up and ready to go yeah but then yeah, yeah. the underground part though and that seems like the worst possible scenario to go underground you have to like uproot your life but how deep was the underground like how big did that expand um that's that's a good there there's no clear numbers or anything but uh let's just say that they were able to stay underground until they decided to start surfacing in the late 1970s. Um, and there were safe houses all over the country. They were primarily located um, in Northern California. Uh, there was a couple in the Midwest, like around in, in Ohio, Chicago area, you know. Um, and then there was a few in the, in the Northeast, New England especially, there's quite a few. Uh, and some of them were hardcore political supporters of the Weather Underground. Others were just people who were like, no, we're not going to let the cops get 
a brother or sister, whatever, you know, a fellow, a, a comrade, whatever you want to call them. Um, I've run into a few people up here in Vermont who uh, put put up different weather underground members because the Vermont used to have like about 50 communes and a lot of them were, they were pretty well organized politically and so on. Like they set up food co-ops. A lot of the stuff that they set up exists now, like food co-ops and women's health centers and alternative schools and all this kind of stuff. Um, but they, and they were, and Vermont being an incredibly rural state, even now, back then was even more rural. So it was fair. I mean, they didn't even have an interstate yet. Uh, it was fairly easy for people just kind of get to go to somebody's farm out in the woods and hang out, you know, and then eventually you could come up with a disguise and sh show yourself back up. And that tradition, I mean, that tradition stems out of Vermont's role all the way back to before the Civil War with the Underground Railroad and everything. So it's just kind of, you know, but but I would say there, the Underground probably involved between 500 and 1,000 people who were connected on different levels. Um, some people was it an East Coast thing or a West Coast thing? I think it was I think it was mostly East and West Coast. You know, because there was there was two very because actually where the Weather Underground finally died was on the West Coast because by then the East Coast people there had been a major split in like 1977 between people who wanted to go above ground and organize working people and the people on the West Coast as a general rule. You know, this is these are kind of generalizations in terms of geography, but. They, the people on the West Coast wanted to continue to be underground and bomb different organizations, different corporations and stuff like that. Uh, but how the Timothy Leary thing happened? One thing after the townhouse bombing and the, and the three people died, they began to do a lot of each cell, each cadre, whatever you want to call them, be, you know, Begin to do a lot of self-examination, and then they would communicate with the central committee, and so they went through a lot of soul searching, group searching, you know, tactic, you know, about tactics, about their politics, about what they were trying to accomplish, all these kind of things that political organizations and any organization goes through on some level when something happens that messes, like you know, changes their approach, uh, and so they decided that. They were going to join together with the freak community. They were going to become one with the counterculture. And Timothy Leary had finally been busted. It was a lame charge. Um, he had been busted. He, he had been traveling with his daughter um, in Texas, I believe. And he got busted. He had was like a joint, or was it a bowl that he had in his car that was had nothing in it? Yeah. It was it was like a I think like a roach like you know half half a joint or something like that, and they busted them and the Texans turned it over to the feds because they knew you know the feds were like we want them we got them and back then you know that was twenty years you know, uh, and so they got them. He went through all the court stuff. He ended up in he ended up in a, a minimum security prison in San Luis Obispo, California, uh, and. Well, that's interesting. They had a minimal security one because I feel like there was a manhunt from Nixon towards Timothy Leary to try and oh, get him. Was, he, yeah. he was yeah, really yeah. just a, a, I wouldn't say a message, but he was kind of like the face of the counterculture movement or started to become the face of the counterculture movement. There is a good book that came out like two or three years ago exactly about that. It's called The Man. It's, a, it's about the whole Timothy Leary and Nixon and 
Timothy Leary's Escapades and so on. I can't remember what it's called. I wrote a review of it, but I can't I remember. I think I have it. the it's author a, on my show. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a great book. It's it's pretty well done, really good journalism. Yeah. Uh, so at the there is a group in California, you, you may have heard of them. They're called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Uh, they were based down in Newport Beach, California. They were some surfer petty criminal guys who the leader of I can't remember his name, he was one of these mystical punk guys, you know. Um, there always is. There always is. Yeah, yeah. Like Emmett Groban with the with the uh, Diggers or Abby Hoffman with the Yippies or whatever. But they, um, he ate some mescaline and he had a vision. And his vision was that we are going to distribute LSD to everybody in the world and we're going to make the world a better place. So he took his gang of like suburban criminals, Orange County criminals, you know, punks, you know, just 20 somethings i mean yeah either either we've been there or we know somebody who's who's there you know they're just kind of like angry so they just do petty crime whether it's selling dope or whatever you know um they uh so they got it together they started somehow they worked it all out they started going over to nepal and smuggling hash back like pounds and pounds of good killer hashish back from nepal in surfboards damn and they got it back and they started selling the hash and when with the money they made from the hash they hooked up with nick scully and timothy sands i think is who were two acid manufacturers lsd manufacturers who had worked under the um mentorship of uh stanley owsley the bear who was like the original illegal acid guy you know um he's a guy who outfitted the grateful dead he provided most of the acid for all the stuff that happened in the counterculture. Yeah, my buddy, um, my my buddy, uh, oh god, I know his book is Acid Dreams or something. Not Acid Dreams. That's Martin Shee's book. Um, that's um, that's Jay Stevens, Acid Dreams. There's a there's another guy out there. I'm blanking on his name. I can't believe him. his name is the Barbarian of Subculture or something like that on Twitter. But he was on David Black. David Black is his name. UK that's author. a great book. Yeah, I have that book right behind me. Yeah, Acid yeah, yeah. He's yeah, been on. He, awesome he's book, been on man. here a couple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah talking yeah. about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. That stuff yeah. is insane. I'm telling it's you, when crazy. it gets lined in with the government, you just lose your mind. It, it was just like so wild, man. Because the whole acid thing. I mean, I don't want to get too far off track here, but like the whole acid thing, it's a mix of like government infiltration very very wealthy people who like were into psychedelics and gave them funded people like leary funded people you know funded owsley then you had the rock bands coming out of san francisco and then then when the when the heat came down the really rich guys sold out the acid manufacturers and stuff like that and then that's just what happened in the united states over in europe there was a parallel thing going on with like the, the houses in London where when they went in when when MK or M I five whichever yeah whichever one does the internal stuff and they went in there and like all the the agents got, got so high because like when you manufacture acid it's kind of like when you do crystal meth it infects the air when you do it over certain amounts so that's why you have to wear like gas masks and stuff like that like heavy duty like combat kind of gas masks because otherwise you'll go in there and you'll get high i mean you'll start tripping and stuff you know so anyhow it's yeah that's a great book i just wish it were longer but it's it's a great book that acid cultural history or whatever it's called but anyhow um so they decided that they were going to free timothy leary uh the weather underground, especially the Central Committee, the East, the West Coast folks, mostly a lot of them, 
uh, because they were eating a lot of acid at the time. They were kind of getting into the whole Northern California freak scene and stuff like that. Grateful Dead, LSD, weed up in Humboldt County, the beginnings yeah. of the weed industry and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they hooked up with the, and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And I think the Brotherhood of Eternal Love asked them if they would do it. This is why, this is where it gets, the, the details are, the linear, the, how it proceeded linearly is hard to explain because when you're dealing with LSD, nothing's really linear, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, they, so they worked out a plan. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love paid them $20,000 to free Leary. They got Leary out. And it's a great story. He talks about it in his book, Diary of a Hope Fiend. He describes it, Timothy Leary does. He describes the whole, the whole escape in pretty good detail and so on, which makes sense since he was the one doing it. But basically, he, he, it was kind of like out of a TV show. He waited till the guards weren't looking. Then he climbed a telephone wire out above the fence because you know, it was only like a 10, 10 foot high fence with barbed wire on the top. He climbed, climbed up a pole, took the telephone wire out like 30 feet or 100 feet to where. And then he climbed down a tree and then there was a car waiting for him that had a couple members of the Weather Underground and a couple other people in there. He hopped into the car. Um, they drove the car to another car and two of the Weather Underground members took the car that Leary had jumped in. They drove it towards Mexico, and they took the other car and headed north, up up to northern Northern California, where they went to somebody's hideaway farm, you know, hippie commune, whatever, someplace up in Humboldt County or somewhere up in you know. Or... Are these still people in their twenties doing this? Yes, yeah, these are all just people in their twenties. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I know it's kind of cool. They were just like, "Let's do it," you know. <laughs> I know that's what's crazy is like I I get like yeah, you're just kind of along for the ride on some things as well too. Timothy Leary's probably has a good plan in his head, but it's just like the amount of communication, the amount that they're able to navigate, you know, figuring out that oh, we got to get separate vehicles and all that's like you never see that in the movies when it comes to twenty year olds. No, no, no. They're usually just making one mistake after the other and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and just like sheer luck that they manage it through, or they're being they're being directed by people who've done it before in their forties and older and so on. So then Leary hung out there for a while. They, you know, they got a disguise for him. They had fake ID for him already. And uh, then through the help of Stu Alpert and Judy Gumbo, um, who were two yippies based out of, uh, and who were very close to the Weather Underground and very close to the Black Panthers, the Eldridge Cleaver wing of the Black Panthers. They got him out of the country and he ended up in Algeria where the, the International Black Panthers under the direction of Elders Cleaver had set up, had been given asylum by the Algerian government because back then it was a revolutionary socialist government um, in the wake of the, you know, the war of national liberation against the French, you know, the anti-colonial war that they beat when they beat the French and the French left in the 60s, that, that ended in the 60s. And they hung out there for a while, but Leary, one of the conditions was that Leary could not do any drugs while he was with the Black Panthers because, I mean, drugs attracted the wrong, attracted cops, let's face it, you know. And in a in a country like Algeria, even though there is a lot of hash and marijuana, you know, Algeria, you know, it's mostly a, an Islamic population. And like a lot of religions, they're, they frown on drugs, you know, yeah. outside of religious things, you know. And, but the key thing was the Algerian government, um, 
was the enemy of most Western governments because, you know, because of its popular, because of its revolutionary stances, supporting other third world revolutions and so on. Um, and it was also like Cuba. It was a place where a lot of hijackers, left wing hijackers back then would direct their planes to. Kind of like a little safe spot. They know they yeah, exactly. It was like a giant safe house, you know. So anyhow, Leary blew it. Eventually he got kicked. The, the Panthers were under so much pressure by the Algerian government to tow him down or get him out of the country that they basically kidnapped him and put him on an airplane and, and told him to get the hell out. So him, he left with his wife, Rosemary. They ended up in, and I think Rosemary said, I'm not going with you, Tim, or they went to Europe for a little bit. She split up with him. He ended up disappearing with a, uh, some woman, Johan, jo somebody who was like a social, you know, a jet setter, a hippie jet setter, you know, which was, there was a lot of them, you know, she hung out with the Rolling Stones. She, you know, a, you know, a lot of money, but, and into the counterculture, but, you know, and people didn't, just casually toss out the stones, just casually toss. Yeah, out. right. Yeah, yeah. The stones, whoever, you know, they hung out with these people, the jet set counterculture people that Europe had a lot of them, you know. I mean, uh, Keith Richards' girlfriend, uh, Anita Pallenberg, she was one of those, you know. She dabbled a little bit in movies, but mostly she came from money and was a freak, a hippie, you know. Do you think that the American counterculture kind of represents the main focus of counterculture based on every other countries or do you think that like all the other ones have a little bit more interest to them the american one's only the only one i really ever hear about i think the american one was the original i think it, it basically you know you could be critical and say it was a form of cultural imperialism because basically it it's like we kind of talked last time the rock music was the way the counterculture spread its gospel and rock music is a most well British and American, mostly a British and US phenomena, although Germany had a fair number of rock groups and stuff. But they yeah, I think it was an I think everything was came out of America regarded mm -hmm. that. I mean the Germans had their own particular flavor to it because it's Germany, you know, the Brits had their own one, the Dutch had theirs, you know, the Italians, etc. and so on. And uh, but yeah, I think it was pretty much an American phenomenon that just kind of went worldwide, just like a lot of American stuff was going worldwide back then, because of its dominant place in the political, you know, the geopolitical structure of the world. How do we get a record that the Weather Underground helped out Timothy Leary? I mean, were they openly talking about it that it was getting published back then? Okay. They know. Yeah, they it, it was in the news, but then they published a communique. I mean, one thing the um the Weather Underground did was, you know, they're all very literate, well-educated people. And so anytime they did something, anytime they did any kind of action that they wanted people to know about and why they did it, they always published a communique and would send it to the media. And the media would always publish it faithfully. It would always, you know, and they would, you know, they would send it both to like alternative media like um, KPFA. Um, you know, Pacifica Radio out in Berkeley or the one, the Pacifica station in WBAI in New York and, and or the one in down in L.A. Those were the three main. And back then it was a Pacifica was a publicly owned network that wasn't PBS. That was pre-PBS and, and pre-public radio. Um, and it was le very left oriented because it was basically yeah. begun by people who were against commercial radio. Uh, and they mostly, you know, they played a lot of different kinds of music and they kind of do what the internet does now, kind of like what you do, you know, and kind of like what other people do, although they tended to stay to the left of the political center in terms of their 
interviewers, their DJs, their programming and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, if you remember, we talked a little bit about the um, underground media and the underground press was still pretty huge until about 74, 75, when the politics, when Rolling Stone became the dominant force and the apolitical media kind of took over, like, you know, like, and a lot of those papers that were political beforehand kind of changed their name, became things like the Seattle Weekly. Uh, a lot of them don't exist anymore. The city paper that yeah. used to exist, you know, you know, uh, those entertainment papers that kind of disappeared now because they're all online. It's too expensive to do the print version too. Do you think the internet killed the whole uh, underground press or died way before that? It died way before that, yeah. Okay. I think it killed, I think what it killed was, I don't know if you re remember this or uh, discuss this or looked into this i think it killed the zines because the zine revolution was huge in the 90s you know it came out of punk like late 80s into the 90s and early, into the early 2000s it came out of like the punk culture and and the anarchist culture and then the skate culture and a bunch of those other like subcultures that existed like from the late 80s all the way into probably till like around 2004 2005 and the zines were um you know they were they were they were rough just you know they were photocopied usually uh because photocopying had become so cheap by that time i mean you could go down to the print center and get the, to the kinkos and get you know a thousand copies made up for like 70 bucks you know and then you either sold them or just passed them out at record stores and at concerts and at shows and stuff like that and some of them were very political some of them were just supporting certain kinds like some were like totally only about hardcore others were totally only about it ska whatever you know and others just kind of talked about local scenes some were uh a lot of the ones when the riot girl thing started were very much about you know that version of feminism um you know the riot girl feminism bikini kill all those all, all that kind of stuff uh, so but i think the internet did more to kill that that and the um well, it's reduced to like political cartoons is all you can hear and see about now, which is like little small ones that are just jokes. They used to be like big messages against Rockefeller type people. And then it was like we have this whole underground press. And I would just think with the Internet, you know, you have a bunch of people now that can just tweet something or write something and have it go up there and be an article or something like that. But I don't know. I like the, you know, when you see someone use their artistic design on a cover of something that they did with back in the days of the counterculture movement, just they're crazy designs that I've seen from like the Chicago seed that was just like, yeah, no wonder this is definitely going to catch someone's eye. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of, yeah, it was very cool to look at. And I was just going to say, it's interesting. You mentioned the cartoon thing. One thing that also I think the internet has destroyed was a lot of the do it yourself DIY comics that used to be all over the place. I mean, people who were, you know, they put together these little comics that you could go to like independent bookstores, especially, and Barnes and Noble and Borders you, in certain bigger places and in college towns, they would usually have a section for that kind of stuff too, for like, you know, local creators and yeah. so on. And now, I mean, it, it's out there on the internet, but it's a lot harder to find because like when you walk into a bookstore when everything was paper, you saw it there. Like you said, it caught your eye. So you're like, oh, this is cool. And so you pick it up, pay your quarter, pay your five dollars, whatever it was, and take it home and share it with your friends and whoever else walked into your wherever you were crashing out or staying and so on. Now, when 
you became older. I mean, do you still have the same, like in the beginning when you talked about first hearing about the weather underground, what, like, I'm guessing you were probably 16, 17 years old. You're in high school. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So with all that time passed, when did you start? I mean, did you have any moments where you're kind of changing your perspective on the weather underground? Or you think that you have a stronger connection to them than you did back? Well, I guess when you were in high school. Um, I would say. Cause I have to feel like it'd be scary if you're in high school hearing about explosions or just hearing about these giant, like kind of movements in a way. Well, to, back then, I mean, I just think it's kind of like people were so caught up in it and it was just just like part of the reality. And there was also the threat if, as a guy that you were going to end up over in Vietnam because the draft was, yeah. was in existence, you know. Uh, and so you, you were like, fuck it, let's do whatever we can to stop this stupid war and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of my friends weren't into it. I, you know, I was one of the always on the more militant side of like. My, my friends, you know, the, most of my friends were all into the counterculture and everything, you know, in high school, because I would say over 50% of the school was at that time, you know, and this was on a military base, but it didn't matter. It was, it was that universal and deep, you know, um, I would say by the time, by the mid seventies, I was, when I was, I was still doing some political stuff with different groups, different left-wing groups. Um, I realized, you know, I had started to really look at the weather underground and examine, try to examine critically the mistakes they had made. Uh, and then I just kind of thought about it over the years. And the reason I wrote the book, there's two reasons. One was because I'd always wanted to try to be, try to get as much as I could together about it so that people on the left could look at what they did and say, okay, learn from the, mis learn from the things they did, the mistakes they made and so on. And then the other reason was I went, it was very practical. I went back to school in my th late thirties and uh, I needed a senior project. And so I said, I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a thesis on, you know, on, on the weather underground. And fortunately my, my advisor was a guy, Peter Bomer, who um, was, he's like 10 years older than me. And he, he was intimately involved with a lot of hardcore left, left wing groups back in the sixties in in boston cambridge and then out in san diego uh, but he was always cri very critical of the weather underground because he thought they made a lot of stupid mistakes and some of the people who were in the group at the you know back then he said their arrogance was enough just to turn you off anyhow you know so and back then like we there was a lot a lot of the leadership was male ego leadership anyhow which adds its own problems to any kind of attempt to get along with each other so I would say now intellectually, um, my connection is stronger because I've thought about it. I've discussed it a lot. I've written about it. I continue to read about it and people ask me about it. I do shows like this um, and, you know, I'll, I'll get I, I get stuff from college students and so on who want to interview me because they read my book and they're writing something about the new left or the counterculture or, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, and so if I can't help them, I always try to provide them with context to people who might be willing to talk about it and so on. Do you think that the left now would respect or maybe connect with the weather underground compared to what the left back then didn't really connect with? Absolutely not. I think I think now the left is basically so disheveled, so so sectarian, like the hardcore, the the left that goes beyond the left of the Democratic Party. They're a bunch of little groups that really there's like 50 parties out there now I'm yeah and they you. and they they all have like at the most 200 members 
you know so they really they get though the protests some of them have newspapers a lot of them have websites you know and they can provide some interesting analysis and so on like you know but they don't you know the majority of what would have been in the left in the 1960s the sds people they would be bernie sanders types now there are that you know democratic on the on the left side of the democratic party which is only so far left before it because it's part of the mainstream party and so on it, you know it, it's a corporate party uh so no and i and i you know even now there are people mostly people who were around back then who still ref, you know who attack me because i wrote a book about the weather underground and i was like my point in writing the book was to present it in a with with from a left perspective their history with some analysis about what they did and why it was inappropriate or why it was just plain wrong, whether it was politically stupid, whatever, you know. But some people they're like, well, you shouldn't even acknowledge that they existed. And I'm like, well, that's a good way to for another group to come up and make, you know, if it, if it gets to that point again sometime in the future where there's this critical mass of like, you know, millions of people who are opposed to the government on the left, not on the right. Um, well, nothing's ever 100% good or bad, but to exactly. wipe yeah. something yeah. off history by not talking about it is probably the biggest disservice you could do. That's I mean, my point. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of like what you, you know, to me, that's the left wing version of what DeSantis and those people are trying to do regarding the history of white supremacy and racism and slavery and so on in the United States. But, oh, let's just don't talk about it and pretend like Rosa Parks just sat in, sat in the front of the bus because she was tired, not because she was trying to make a point and she was an African-American woman who wasn't allowed to sit there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, you, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it and usually even more foolishly than, than the first time, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, with the weather underground, I mean, if you're ever going to write another piece or an area that you might have left behind, I know you wrote the book a while ago, but I'm sure you still have an interest in oh, looking yeah, at just, yeah. you probably come across new things every now and again. Uh, but is there ever an area that you would like to focus if you could write a whole other book about the weather underground? I would like to, and this would be, a, uh, and this is what I wanted to do back then, but it was, it was, like I said, it was impossible because people weren't talking. It seems very controversial. Yeah, I would love to, two things. One thing I would like to discuss more and inter interview and talk with people who were involved either actually in the group be an underground or those who provided safe houses for them and how they worked a lot of that stuff out and the, and the, the dynamics that were involved and how they worked out their different politics and then the other thing would be just to kind of take a look at it because there's a lot more stuff out there now there's been a lot of books written about them um there's been a lot more analysis coming out about them and to take a look at what they thought then, what we think, what the left thinks now and everything that ha has happened in between both both on the left and in the world and in the U.S., how the government, how the political, you know, the political whatever spectrum pendulum has swung okay. pretty far to the right. And even when it swings back to the left, it's not as far to the left as it was, say, even when Nixon was in power, you know, because now stuff like food stamps is like, under, you know, stuff that back then you just didn't, you know, like the environmental protection stuff, um, you know, child labor, you know, stuff like that. All EPA's that... captured 100%. Something's going on with them. I can tell you that much. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. They got bought out like 
so long ago. It's sad. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I was yeah. surprised when the Guardian wrote an article about the Ohio incident where the train thing exploded, and the Guardian was like, "We're going to investigate into this because this seems fishy." I was like, "Hey, someone's like actually questioning that. It's weird how they made all these people evacuate their homes, and the government starts coming in to buy up land. Like, what the yeah, fuck? Yeah, say, that? oh, don't worry, nothing to see here. Keep yeah. on, move on. Yeah, right. To me, yeah, I'm exactly. like, look, yeah. I understand yeah. people could say conspiracy, but I started looking at things, and if you look at the number of properties that have just like caught fire or something happened, and then someone had bought that property and made something on top of that a couple of years later, I say that's pretty suspicious, a little bit. Yeah. It reminded me of Three Mile Island when all of a sudden, oh yeah, you know, they're saying, oh, don't worry, everybody's safe, you know, and then like. Cows are dying. Cows stop giving milk. The milk's radioactive. You're like, no, this, this, this. There's too much of a cognitive dissonance. There's dissonance only here. so yeah. many coincidences in the world yeah, right. before yeah. you really yeah. start questioning yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. a when it, when it when it comes to the weather underground. I mean, do you think that like my generation, other generations? I mean, you see probably similarities with certain types of counterculture movements that could relate to today. But I mean, do you think that it would be important for someone of my generation, younger generations to just learn about it, know about it, understand it? You did write it of like, this is what happened. This is what could we shouldn't have maybe done to make it to the actual movement it was supposed to be or something that could have had a really powerful impact. But at the same time, like you only learn with hindsight, you only learn through history. And nobody, my generation or younger is really interested in learning in history. Yeah, um, I think that, like we just said, you know, I you know, I think it's crucial that people, especially if they want to get interested in politics beyond the mainstream, um, you know, and that, that they read about groups like the Weather Underground so that they don't think that just because they're frustrated because things aren't moving quickly enough and people aren't listening to them, be they're being blocked out slash censored or whatever that they it's time for them to start doing you know essentially terrorist actions and so on even if you don't hurt anybody you know um the part of the thing of terrorism is to scare people and intimidate people uh and you know i think the last big time that happened was during a lot of the earth liberation front stuff and the and the PETA, not PETA, but the more extreme people to the the more extreme than PETA the were the ones who were letting go all of the research animals and stuff like that, or blowing up. Uh, this this happened a lot, especially in the Northwest, Eugene, Oregon, Olympia. Um, you know, and all, things out there always tend to be a little more extreme. Anyhow, it's just the nature of the politics out there for some reason. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe it's the weather. I don't know. But you uh, think you had the weather? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like what you did there. <laughs> do, do you think um, even with like the stuff we have seen today, like with paint on paintings and a bunch of other things, like I don't agree with that at all. I think it's really dumb. I think you can make a better statement another way. I get some people say like it's an effective way, but there's nobody that's important that is going to make the real decisions and changes that go to those actual events. You got to get to something like an actual event. I'm not saying start a revolution, but protest on like stairs or something you know in front of a building that people walk into every day that make these policies and make these laws i mean show them that you're here but i saw them do it at a pool game too and as an artist i saw them do it on the paintings i got really upset i was like damn i was like i would want to go to one of these because it's really important art plus you have like old schools and i get it because it's like i guess the high class style that they're trying to attack but i don't know for me it was just it's there seems like there's a lot of things that we should be talking about and we should be doing a lot of things about, but the things that some of these giant corporations that we're supposed to hold like PETA and all these, they're focused on like Pete Davidson, uh, buying a dog instead of adopting one. And I'm like, 
really, this is what we're doing now. And I'm like, I hate to say it like that. Cause then it makes you kind of like, okay, what have you done? But it's like, I mean, I just see problems. Like we're complaining We're we ban the word seagrass. Cause it's now considered a environmentalist considered a slur. Um, and I'm like, what about the people that are like in a mine working for 270 an hour and don't have another choice to do anything? Like, could that be an option we could possibly look at? I mean, there's plenty of other contaminants and other things environmentally that we could be talking about rather than just banning a word because it's called seagrass. Like apparently it has a bad history of um with weed calling it grass or something. I don't know. Yeah, but, I, that's I interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree completely. Though people, all those actions are s- symbolic and there's a symbolic attacks can can make a difference but without any context which i really believe most of these attacks don't have because they haven't done the groundwork required to uh get beyond how the media is going to present it and you can go and throw paint on a painting or throw paint on the glass in front of the painting whatever you do and then tell the media why you did it but once you give it out to the media, if you don't really have enough people to help explain, like people, supporters, et cetera, and so on, that will help explain why it was done, you just kind of look like a clown or a frustrated kid or whatever, even if you're not a kid, you know what I mean? Um, so, well, we live in I a digital th- world, so you get like a video clip of someone just freaking out and taping themselves or gluing themselves to a painting. It doesn't come out like probably what it was intended to be. I get the message at the ending of like, hey, pay attention to what we're doing over here. But I think that's the same situation with the Weather Underground, maybe less violent, but it just becomes a situation they don't have a face for people to um, go to or an establishment that's going to help and get the things that they need done. You know, we have like PETA and all these other places, but they're necessarily not doing like, they'll do something to seem relevant in the news, which is like ban seagrass or something, but right. Right. There's yeah. nothing those are all of, meaningless. Really. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's yeah. nothing at a core element though, that I've noticed. And I've, I get now I, their country's so tense as well too. And it's always been tense, but I look at like, well, nobody's being heard and you're having all these events that are breaking out and they're in snippets and sound bites. So they don't really go out there to the full length that they're supposed to, which uh, that's just comes from, I think capitalism has really taken over the whole thing. Anything that you would see as like, oh, that thing, the EPA, that's, you know, left, that's a green company. It's good. No, it's not. It's all captured. It's all business. It's all owned now. By, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that that brings up a whole question of something that really started going out of control in the 80s and the 90s was the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations. And, you know, so a lot of groups want to get their, they need funding. They don't want to go out and do grassroots door-to-door kind of stuff so they'll so they'll work with an ngo an ngo say okay we'll give you this thirty thousand dollar grant or whatever but these are some things that you cannot attack because those ngos a lot of them are funded by foundations that are corporate foundations you know the same people who sponsored pbs you know the rockefeller foundation etc so that automatically limits how close to the core they're going to go, you know, like, you know, because if, if you think about it, radical and it's fun, you know, the, the roots of ra- the word radical is to the root. I don't think those kind of groups are radical. I think they're militant liberals who who are they're trying to make a statement, but they're not they're not going to go. Deep enough into the forest um, so that they can uh, actually save the forest. They're just going to try to save few, a few of the trees that are bordering the highway, whereas all the crap goes on behind it, just like, you know, just like how it happens in the real world. So, and I think that, you know, we keep on, 
coming back to the digital world. I think, you know, and this is one of the biggest frustrations I have as somebody who's been an organizer on and off for like 50 years is that people go on Facebook, they set up a Facebook page or they create a Twitter account or a TikTok or whatever the latest version of social media out there is. And they say, and they get 3000 followers um, all over the country, all over the world, whatever. So, so let's say a group in New York City says, okay, we're gonna have a demonstration against the new, or down the floor says, we're gonna have a demonstration against the new immigration policy down here, which is basically banning all, making any immigrant illegal. Um, so instead of going out and talking and doing the hard work of like standing in front of where people work and talking to them and getting into confrontations or conversations and so on with them, you know, they put out a call on the internet and hope people show up. And that doesn't work. I mean, I do, when I was like doing the labor stuff, like I, I think I told you I was president of my local like last up until about the end of last year for, for three years. And we were going through a lot of contract stuff and then the COVID stuff happened and they tried to like lay a bunch of us off without pay. And so we said, no. And, it, you know, so we had a thing going on and they're like, we need to have a rally, to, uh, uh, you know, to shut down the mayor's office to say, no, you're not going to take this out on us, you know. Um, because we need to work too. We need to have income coming in, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so what they did at first is they just put out a call on the um, internet and hardly anybody responded. I said, no, what we need to do is we have to go to the, where these people work and convince them that they need to show up because even if it's not, not their work site, their part, it could be their work site next. If it works here, the, the next city's good. Yeah, they're gonna try it there and stuff like that. So that did work. But it's a lot of hard work and i understand people don't have as much time as they used to they're you know and, and like a lot of the committed activists are paid activists and so then they're either being paid by move on or another element of the democratic party or they're being paid by some ngo that has corporate backing so they're limited in what they can do and if they just want to go outside and 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 do grassroots work and so on it's hard to find that support because that's the hardest part is building the support from the ground up so it's a it's a really complex issue and i can understand why people get frustrated and throw pain on you know that or or attack i don't understand why people would i don't understand these personal attacks on celebrities but i just think that you know like the one you mentioned about pete davidson i don't even know who pete davidson is but that's another story but um it's, he's a, he's I don't a comedian, under... but uh, okay, he, act, okay. he he explained it and everything. But Peter had just called it out, like in a tweet, thinking it was like a good thing to do. Maybe it's just a pop up in the news or something like that. A lot of this stuff I start thinking is like psyops or something like that. Like the amount of exhaustion I get when I go on social media now. Like I only post once a day and then I'm off of it, which is unusual for my generation. Um, but I, I'm only 25. But I, I just I I can't handle it. Maybe it's my ADHD. I get too much input, not enough output, I guess. But I get exhausted from it, and I start asking my friends like yeah, I'll spend like an hour, but I start seeing them doing off a little bit throughout the day off being off social media because there's like a psyop exhaustion thing that happens where you're being flooded with so much, your brain has nothing to do but to shut down. Yeah, yeah. That's what was the nice thing, if there was a nice thing about in the before social media, before the internet was like how I was talking about, there was three major networks. You got your news from them or you and you got your news from your alternative paper or your lefty paper or whatever and from conversation with your friends and sure they package the news in their own way but you got a critique or you got the news in a way and then you were able to kind of 
you had to go and actually try to think about it to make sense of it, as opposed to now, like you said, you don't really have time to think. There's a new thing coming up, you know. And I mean, I get it. Both of my kids, um, they're in ones in their their late twenties, the others in their late thirties. They don't do social media at all anymore, just for exactly the the reasons you just said. You know, you know, my daughter was wicked into it in high school and so on, and uh, now she she's completely dropped off except when she signs on for an Instagram account when she's going to some event where the, all the other people in the event they want to have like a side a way to contact each other without yeah. emails because the young people don't do emails either so yeah I'm learning but yeah it's difficult <laughs> <laughs> but Ron I appreciate the time you gave me to talk about the weather underground and join me again for another conversation man it's always a pleasure having you back on um, is there a place where people can find your links? If you want to say a couple links or I could just make sure I'll put them in the description. Yeah, you can just put them in the description. Yeah, that's okay. good enough. You know, any uh, message to anybody out there listening? That would be maybe, I don't know, a young person thinking about making some change. Just don't say anything about starting a cult and we'll be good. Yeah. Just read, read history, you know, and just like, uh, read books first because books are going to, people took a lot more time to write a book. Uh, so that usually means that the stuff that you read the content is going to be at least more more deeply thought out than what you're going to see on social media and on and on the TV for sure. I mean, at least on social media, you can respond to what you're seeing on the TV. It's all programming. There's a reason they call it programming. So, and your book you were mentioning before I cut you off. Yeah, um, my book is still available. You can get it through Verso, who's the publisher. Um, they usually have it on sale for like fifteen bucks. Um, you can get it at a library. It's in like a few, like several hundred libraries around the United States and overseas. And you can also buy it on Amazon. Go, th I recommend going to a marketplace seller because it's usually cheaper. And then that way, Amazon only gets a few, a few cents as opposed to many cents. <laughs> and it doesn't matter to me. I'm not in it for the money, which is good because you don't make a lot of money when you don't write, you know, pop fiction. So that's how it is. Plus, better work if it's made through passion. So exactly, I agree. Like your web, like like your deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it, Ron. And Ron, thank you so much for giving me the time. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Blank Podcast.